Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life. We all know that our finances play a big part in how we live our lives. In this podcast, the advisors from Foster and Motley share insights and information about investment and financial planning topics and how they connect to your life. You've come into some money from an inheritance. Congratulations. But what do you do now? Well, first, you need some answers. Among other things, you need to know what type of inheritance it is whether it comes to you all at once or over time, and the tax implications. Zach Binzer and Ryan English are with me, Patrice Sikora, to talk about your windfall and what to do next. Now, Zach, an inheritance, unfortunately, often comes during a difficult time, the passing of someone dear to you. And I could think that might contribute to some challenging decision-making. You're right. It does. Um, there's multiple facets when a loved one passes away. There's the emotional grief and that process that we all have to work through. And then there becomes the legal matters and the financial matters as well. And they all have their own timeline to execution. They're all important in their own right. Having gone through this myself, I think I would coach folks to work on the emotional grief process first, knowing that some of the other things have a longer timeline, time horizon to execute. So when a loved one passes, there's a lot of steps that need to take and having advisors in place that can help coach you through those in a timely manner is very important. You know, that could be a wealth manager, a financial advisor, usually an estate planning attorney, usually a CPA or tax preparer. They're all going to have hands in this process. Ryan, when you think inheritance, really, you usually think, hey, this is a lump of money, a sum of money here and. I'm going to take it and I'm going to do something with it. Is it a chance to splurge on buying? Well, Patrice, I mean, certainly you, someone who inherits money has the ability to do that, given the fact that they just got a large windfall in assets. But, you know, we would recommend for them to kind of take a step back. Don't make any big financial decisions immediately and think about, you know, what they should do with this money and how it works in the long run for their financial plan. So, I mean, there is certainly an urge maybe to go out and buy a bigger house or buy a nice car, but that may not be the best decision to make immediately, especially when you're grieving with the the passing of a loved one. You know, your decision-making mindset might not be for the long run at that particular time. Hmm. All right. Talk to me about the different types of inheritances. Yeah, it's important to understand all of the assets that made up your loved one's estate, how those assets were titled, i.e. how are they owned, were there any beneficiary designations, were there any documents in place that governed how these assets would be distributed to the heirs. A lot of complexity and a lot of uh, customization that could occur for each and every individual. So understanding how everything is foundationally before decisions are made on next steps is usually the first step. Those assets could be held in trust, i.e. the deceased could have wished that every one of their assets be accumulated into a trust document, and then their wishes were made known through that trust document on how it would be distributed to their heirs. Other ways of passing assets would be by beneficiary designation. That could be in a health savings account, an IRA, a Roth IRA, a 401k, 403b, the list goes on. And those assets can pass without a trust or without probate court via those beneficiary designations. So a lot of possibility for complexity and a lot of 
needing to understand how things were set up foundationally before next steps can be executed to distribute those assets to the uh, intended heirs. And Patrice, I think this is an important point. You know, as Zach mentioned, I mean, trusts, they typically have a, a specific language on the disposition or the distribution of those assets. I mean, beneficiary designations on an IRA, I mean, they're typically named as primary and contingent. And the question we get from clients from time to time is I need to, should I update my will? And, you know, that is certainly something that needs to be done, but it's not the document that necessarily will drive where most of the assets will go upon their death. That is done through trust language and beneficiaries on IRAs and Roth IRAs. And those beneficiary designations are so important because if they are not updated, there can be lots of problems. That's very true. I mean, just to expand a little bit on what Ryan said, the will document is the one that comes to mind when people think about passing away. But in our course of estate planning with our clients, we try to avoid the will having any governance at all. It's important to have as a catch-all, but we work with our clients to, to use trusts and beneficiary designations to make sure their wishes are known. One, the will introduces the court process, the probate court process. It also introduces public record. So if assets all pass via the will, people could look into the court documents and see how that um, those assets were distributed. And then some, some people out there use that as a business opportunity. Realtors reach out. Can we sell your deceased family member's home? Other things, other reasons to reach out. So um, we do try to avoid the will being the governing document at time of passing. And then to your point, on the beneficiary designations, yes, it is important to keep those relevant and up to date. Uh, a beneficiary designation would trump any wishes made known via a will or via a trust. So think of a second marriage situation where, you know, say the husband marries his new wife, has a life insurance policy at work that he never updates the beneficiary designation on to the new wife and his ex-wife remains named at his passing, that life insurance proceeds would pay to the ex-wife. So it is very important as life evolves, as life changes, that we make sure beneficiary designations are up to date and in line with current wishes for passing your assets. Yeah, and this is you know a step that we can really help with at Foster Motley. I mean, an attorney will draft the documents from a legal perspective you know, and recommend sort of a flow chart of how things should be designated or beneficiaries named. But the actual implementation of changing those beneficiaries is another step that typically is not thought that needs to happen after you consult an attorney, but something that we can help make sure is done. Talk to me about the steps needed to navigate the inheritance process. Yeah, so I think the starting point that when you you find out your loved one has passed, you work through the emotional grief process. But in addition, you need to identify whether any estate planning documents were in place. So we've mentioned wills, we've mentioned trust, things like that. So start with, were those documents in place? If so, which attorney prepared them? Is that an attorney you're interested in working with to help guide you through the estate process? If not, is there an attorney you trust more that you would like to get involved? And if so, share those documents with them to initiate the process. Other things it's important to get your hands on as you, you know, share with the outside world that your loved one has passed would be their birth certificate, their social security card, their passport. Those are important documents from an identity theft protection standpoint, but also at some point very soon, you're going to need copies of the death certificate. 
And that's probably the key document that you'll need in in moving forward with distributing out this person's estate. And, and typically, the funeral home can help coordinate the death certificate process. They'll also notify Social Security Administration of the loved one's passing. I would encourage those with death certificate to order five, six, seven, maybe 10 copies. Usually, ordering them in bunches is less expensive. And we're talking of, you know, $50. So it's not a, a huge expense, but get several copies because there's going to be several institutions who desire to get a copy of that before they'll even entertain the idea of passing these assets to another individual. I can uh, back that up. When my father passed, we had to get, I, every time I turned around, somebody was asking for a death certificate. Thank goodness we had a lot of them, enough of them. It never hurts to have too many copies. And <laughs> when you're done with all this, you can shred the rest, right? Yeah, yeah. true enough. And then there's two different forms of it, right? A long form and a short form. And, you know, a life insurance company probably wants the long form. So, you know, it's better to order extras. <laughs> That's true. That's true. How long does it take to actually receive an inheritance? Well, that all depends on the complexity of the estate. But we we would say that, um, you know, once you get the death certificate, you know, and submitting that death certificate for life insurance is not a long process. Submitting that death certificate to, say, a custodian and having IRAs move to an IRA move to a spouse is not a long process. Now, if an IRA has to move to, say, several kids, three kids, that'll be a bit longer because, you know, each one of the inheritors would have to open their own inherited IRA and move the assets, which is typically a longer process. So it really all depends on what the makeup of the accounts are. But I would say that typically you can plan on up to nine months is the time wow. frame for everything to be complete. Actually, that's not such a bad thing. It gives you time to calm down maybe and say, I don't want to buy that new car or I don't need to buy that new car. Yeah, I agree. I Rarely do I feel like speed and expediency is necessary for a state settlement. Typically, the, the slow, more efficient, methodical, deliberate actions pan out better. One, it allows you time to, to not make immediate um, decisions on spending, as you alluded to earlier, or you know have any gut reactions. It allows you time to take a deep breath, exhale, understand all the facts and circumstances, and then make informed decisions on what next steps should be. Yeah, yeah, and Patrice, I will say that you know, as Zach mentioned earlier, I mean, our goal as advisors is to prevent a state from going to probate. So the speed at which, or the time at which, an estate is settled also depends on how well the planning was done, you know, prior to the person's death, as well as the storage of those documents, where they are, who has them, the advisors involved, and their knowledge of the client's situation or the person's situation. I mean, those are all factors that contributed to that contribute to um, the settlement of the estate and the time it takes. All right, let's bring up big word, taxes. What do we do here? Sure. Um, as with all things, taxes has its way of weaving itself into the core of our financial planning here. You know, they've this. what's the saying out there? Uh, nothing's guaranteed but death and taxes. True, um, true. So <laughs> fortunately, back in 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act expanded the flexibility of estate taxes, i.e. increased the thresholds at which people would be taxed on their estate, meaning larger estates could pass to the heirs without estate taxes. Currently, each individual out there has a lifetime exclusion of almost $13 million. That changes each year with inflation. So a combined 
married couple would have you know, $26 million estate that could pass free of estate taxes. That's on the federal level. Most states have aligned their estate tax rules with the federal guidelines, but some still have their unique laws in place. And so it is a state-by-state basis on whether you may pay estate taxes at the state level. So with those higher thresholds, vast majority of Americans are not going to be facing an estate tax situation, but there are cases out there um, where your estate exceeds that kind of $26 million threshold today, and there may be taxes due. In that circumstance, usually part of the estate settlement process is to file an estate tax return, which identifies and defines what those taxes are. And the estate assets would then pay those taxes prior to the assets being distributed to the heirs. As a recipient of an inheritance, you, in theory, aren't going to pay any taxes, uh, not at your level. So basically, your inheritance is reduced by the amount of taxes that are due, and then you receive the net. And then, Ryan, can you talk about what types of inheritances are taxable? Yeah, and, and Patrice, so certainly when someone who inherits a, a number of accounts of different account types, you know, they can have different tax consequences or taxability. Like an HSA account, a health savings account, you know, that is an account that um, went was funded with pre-tax money. So as soon as someone inherits, inherits that, it becomes taxable to the beneficiary. An IRA is also an account that was funded with pre-tax money. And when someone inherits that, they ultimately will have to pay tax on the withdrawals of that. So there are IRS rules regarding the amounts that need to be withdrawn each year. A trust account or a taxable account, you typically gets what's called a step up in cost basis. So if that particular account owned a stock that had a large gain, uh, the gain on that stock would effectively be wiped out and the cost basis would be equal to the market value at the time of the person's death. So from then on, the beneficiary will pay taxes based on, you know, effectively, typically their tax rate for capital gains and dividends. And then a Roth IRA is, is one of the most beneficial accounts uh, around, if not the most beneficial. <clears throat> it was funded with after-tax money. And when someone inherits this particular account, all the taxes are already paid on it. So whatever they take out is not taxable. The IRS has certain rules in place for these accounts now, though, that money will have to be withdrawn within 10 years of inheritance if it's not uh, inherited by a spouse. Sounds to me like you need a professional to help you with this. Yeah, that's definitely recommended. Financial advisors are, are a great resource in this context, but also a CPA or a tax planner would also be able to help you navigate the tax implications of receiving these assets, you know, timing of RMDs, as Ryan alluded to, there is a 10-year rule. So depending on your facts and circumstances, it may be best to distribute those assets out one-tenth each and every year for the 10 years. There may be reasons to delay a large portion of those distributions to later in life. Say you're approaching retirement and for the first five years, you plan to keep working and be in higher tax brackets, but then after that, plan to be retired and Theoretically, your income tax is at a lower rate, and therefore distributing IRA assets at that time may be more prudent, uh, more tax efficient. So having experts and advisors guiding you through that decision-making process is definitely recommended. The other thing that we haven't thrown out there is the idea of a trust. So we've 
we've talked about a trust as an accumulation of assets for your heirs, but some trust documents define keeping those assets over many years, several years, or over a lifetime. So some trusts would say, just accumulate all the assets and divide it for all my heirs and distribute out 100% in the first year. Some say accumulate all my assets and give my heirs 5% of the trust assets per year going forward indefinitely. Um, so a lot of tax complexity can come from that. And a trust itself as a taxable entity. So we have individuals who pay taxes, but we also have trusts that pay taxes. And the tax complexities for trust versus individuals also would probably warrant having an expert involved. Going through all this as an individual, it made me think of my own plans ahead. And I would think that this would really prompt a lot of people to do the same thing, to start looking at how they want their assets to be distributed. Yeah, Patrice, I mean, these are these are big questions. Sometimes they are tough questions. And, you know, not always do um, spouses agree on where the assets should go. So I we recommend you think about it as a, as a process. You know, the best thing you can do is get something in in place or a foundation or a baseline with what your current thoughts are and how you wish to you know distribute your assets or from your estate you know kind of outline accordingly flow chart and think about where exactly these counts will be going and how much in terms of dollars we're talking about and then you know have an attorney draft documents and then make sure that these accounts are titled properly and everything is in place and keep in mind that you know once you have something in place, I mean, you can always change it later. You can revisit it if some circumstances have changed or different things happen, of course, in life. You can always revisit the documents and the titling, and it's not, of course, permanent until, until it's passing. permanent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, how can someone reach you folks at Foster and Motley? Because I'm sure more people are beginning to realize we really need to get some help with this. Yeah, I think we try to encourage everyone to do this ahead of time, but no one likes planning their own demise. So estate planning tends to be the most slowly executed for our clients. When you're coming out of an experience that sounds like all three of us have had, where a loved one has passed and you experienced the estate process, you understand quickly the importance of the planning ahead and, and typically work quicker to get your own documents in place. So you know, I do recommend a proactive approach. Don't wait for someone else's experience to to trigger you to take yours. And we are very much active in our clients' lives when we comes to the estate planning process. So you can find us at our website, um, www.fosterandandmotley.com. And Patrice, I'll add that um, Zach has actually written a very good article on what do I do with inheritance money? It is titled. So you can visit our website and find his article on our insights page. And, you know, it'll help summarize what we've just discussed today. It was a great discussion, guys. If you found this information useful, listener, please subscribe or follow the podcast. And of course, don't forget to share with others. And thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Keep in mind that rules and regulations are subject to change. 
Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.